the Uproom Frisco podcast. To learn more about your Frisco, please visit uproomfrisco.com. All right, y'all, y'all really need to pray for me. Um, not because of my horrible jokes, but uh, I feel like I have a, a, a doozy of a task this week because if you were here last week, you know that I started talking about how to read the Bible, but what I, I inadvertently started a series because I went, I only got halfway through my notes because I love the Bible so much and I, and I really wanted to do it justice. It's such a sacred topic. It's so many layered. And for us, um, it, can, it can trigger uh, um, uh, discouragement or confusion because of our history with scripture. And so I got about halfway through my notes and I figured, you know what? We'll do a series on how to read the Bible and, and the importance of Scripture, uh, which, I mean, it's, I can't think of anything I'm more passionate about than finding God in here. And, and so this week, <laughs> I went and looked at my leftover notes from last week, and I started filling it out and allowing the Holy Spirit to just flow and think about what he wanted to do. And sure enough, I probably typed up another two messages. And so <laughs> I, I need you to pray for me and, and have grace on me because I feel like this is such a huge and important topic and I want to handle it really well. And so there's a lot of um, compiling and categorizing that I, I'm trying to do so that this is a, um, a beneficial and edible kind of message. All right. Um, so last week we started off and I, I talked about like my personal journey with scripture from uh, early childhood and growing up uh, in, a, in a Christian home where my mom read the Bible to me and the Bible was so important to both my mom and dad. And I knew the Holy Spirit. We had home group and just in, in exuberant worship. It was just a wonderful way to grow up. And the Bible to me I, I read it with, with my mom or at Sunday school, and it was always about, I was fascinated. I was reading for fascination and, and encounter. I was enthralled by the stories, and as a child, I felt God. I knew the Holy Spirit was real because I felt Him. You know that kids don't have a junior Holy Spirit, right? I look back, and like, I... It, it's kind of like growing up in a house that smells like chocolate chip cookies all the time. You know, you, if your mom is always making chocolate chip cookies, you get used to the smell of chocolate chip cookies. And so I was immersed in the presence of God all throughout my childhood, and I got used to it. But you know what happened is that I had, in my late teens, I had a falling away where I, I let go of the Lord. Of course, he didn't let go of me, but I let go of the Lord. But a day came a couple years later where the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of my heart again, and guess what? I smelled that fragrance that I knew since I was a child. And it was like smelling chocolate chip cookies again for the first time, only it was the presence of the Lord. And in a flash, all of those encounters, all of those memories, are in tears, I'm weeping, repenting, coming back to God and saying, you're real, you're real. I'm sorry I broke your heart. And so I grew up loving the word, reading it for fascination. And, but then in my teen years, let me just unpack it a little bit more back up to my teen years, I started reading scripture to find all the rules. I came across a religious spirit quite naturally uh, as, a, as a kid. And shame and fear had entered my life. Shame because I couldn't live 
I couldn't behave rightly all the time. And fear because I was afraid that I would end up on the wrong side of God's judgment. And so the way that I controlled the situation is I read scripture to create my own system of righteousness, which I would uphold by my own strength. Anybody else ever been there? That never ends well, does it? When we create a system of righteousness that we hold up in our own strength. And so, of course, it turned into like a powder keg in my soul where um, all the spiritual pride and judgment that um, I'd been living in um, turned into rebellion. So from 18 to 20, I, I rebelled. I had those prodigal years and then came back to the Lord. And guess what? I rediscovered scripture and was back into reading it for fascination and encounter. And so um, I, I'd mentioned that just because I was a Bible nerd uh, who loved the Holy Spirit, but also had a case of the religious spirit, I read scripture. <laughs> I know that's a lot to handle. You know that you can have a religious spirit and encounter the Holy Spirit because he, he's so gentle and kind and merciful. Like you can have, anyway. So by the time I was out of high school, I probably read through the Bible five times, every word, cover to cover. And, um, and so I knew a lot of it. I had uh, a lot of segmented understandings of doctrines and stories and rules, and then moments of encounter where like scriptures were really important to me in my history with God, but I didn't have every, anything to kind of like tie it all together and have it all make sense. And I remember vividly about 18 years ago, I heard a guy named Bill Johnson say this phrase and it changed everything for me. He said, Jesus is perfect theology. And it was so simple. It like offended me, but intrigued me. And then I just, so I started just thinking about it. I was like, Jesus is perfect theology. So let's break it down. Theology, theos, or the study of theos is the study of God, the understanding of God. Jesus is 100% God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like he is God. He's the exact representation of God, the very radiance. So I'm, Jesus is God. So studying Jesus is theology. He is the most accurate representation of the Father we, we have. And so if you are able to see his life rightly, you're able to see God rightly. And then, I, then it really, and then Jesus, uh, he became like the lens through which I read scripture. Uh, the theological word for it is he became my hermeneutic. He was the, the science behind the way that I would interpret scripture. He became my decoder ring. He became my Rosetta Stone. He became the one that made scripture make sense. He is the Alpha and Omega, and he is the hero in here that was hiding from page one to the, to the last page. And not only did that begin my journey of having the like, Bible come alive to me all over again, and, and so many things begin to make sense to me, I realized that this is not only what Jesus gives us permission to do, it's what he encourages us to do. And I'll give you some scriptures to back that up. This is, this is all recap, and a lot of this is in the podcast from last week, so let me just go through it real quick. John 1.14, the word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You don't, I mean, if you can get these up there real quick, that's going to be amazing, but I'm just going to blaze through these. So uh, John 14:9. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. John 5, 19. I only do what I see my father doing. John 12, 49. I don't speak on my own. The words that I speak have been given to me from the father. So here we go. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. If you've heard me, you've heard the father. If you've seen what I do, you see what the father does. Colossians 1.15, Paul puts it like this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus goes on. This is John 8.19. If you know me, you know my Father also. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Okay, I've got two more. These ones are kind of like the nails in the coffin. In John 5.39, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and they've kind of like, annoyed him. And he says, he says, you guys diligently study the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which speak of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you would have life. Whoa. These are the knowers of the Bible. These guys are the rock star memorizers of scripture. They know it forwards and backwards. They are the law keepers. Jesus comes along and says, you've looked through all of these scriptures and you've missed the main point, which is me. They all point to me. I'm standing right in front of you. And the people who knew the word of God killed the God of the word. Hebrews chapter one puts it like this. this is one of my favorites. In the past, God spoke to us through the prophets in many ways and at various times. But in these last days, he is speaking to us through his son. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation. The exact representation. The exact representation. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Sustaining all things by the power of his word. What? Jesus, who is bigger than the universe. It says even the highest heavens can't contain him. You know, Jesus doesn't live in heaven. Heaven lives in Jesus, right? He comes, like all of God somehow gets in a microscopic seed so that he can come into the creation that he created and live within the construct so that he can walk among his beloveds. And even when he was Flesh and bone. He is always flesh and bone, by the way, forever. He has kept the body. He probably had an upgrade, of course, glorified one. But when he is in this frame, the universe inside him is bigger than the universe outside him. And he put all of that in us. Said, if, if someone says, look over there, there's the kingdom. Or here, I found it over here. Don't listen to them. For I tell you the truth, the kingdom is within you. These are just like 
a few of the verses. There's even more, but this should start to make perfect sense when you think about whose spirit lives in us and what is the purpose of that indwelling spirit. So simple question, whose spirit lives in us? Jesus is the spirit of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And what is one of the main purposes for him dwelling inside of us? It's one of the first mentioned reasons that the helper would come. John 14, 26, Jesus says, you're going to have the helper and he's going to lead you into all truth and remind you of everything I've said to you, which means that it takes the spirit of Christ inside of us to give us the eyes of understanding to understand this. I'm going to say this as bluntly as I can, but there is no other dead guy's ghost I want living inside of me. (laughs) Hear me when I say this. The The Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Christ living inside me helps me interpret Paul's words helps me interpret every, every scripture. But the reverse is not true. Paul's spirit doesn't live inside me to help me interpret Jesus. Many problems arise when we try to allow a saint to sit in Christ's seat. Jesus pointed this out to his disciples right after the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go up that mountain. Who do they see? Elijah and Moses. The next day, they run into Samaritans, Peter, James, and John. They say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and kill these people? Where did they learn that? Elijah, from the day before. And Jesus, what does he say? You don't know what spirit you're of. And then calmly, gently, clearly, Jesus says, so that everyone throughout all of history would know, the Son of Man didn't come to destroy men, but to save them. I don't want to put Moses or Elijah in the seat of my heart at the expense of understanding the mercy, grace, power, and truth of Jesus. It's the other way around. Jesus helps me make sense of everything. We talked a little bit about the road to Emmaus. I want to unpack it further. This is in Luke 24. Jesus had appeared at this point. He'd like resurrected, really cool, appeared to Mary, 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 and Joanna. He loves Marys. Um, Anybody else in here have four best friends with the same name? Jesus had four Marys. There's a teaching in there. Anyway, um, So he appeared to Mary, 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 Joanna, and these ladies, they told the disciples that Jesus wasn't in the grave. These angels told them that he had risen. It was very perplexing. It was, it was a crazy moment for all of these dudes to hear. And, um, and then that day, two disciples are walking uh, a seven-mile journey to Emmaus, this city outside Jerusalem. And <clears throat> 
on the way, a traveler joins them. And we know some of this story. It's, it's so amazing. Jesus comes, but they don't know it's Jesus because just like he disguised himself to Mary as a gardener, he is keeping them from seeing who he is. And he walks with them. And um, the disciples are talking about the crazy events of the last few days and the, the perplexing thing that Mary, 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 and Joanna had come back to report. And... Um, this is uh, Luke twenty four seventeen. Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? Like, have you been living in a cave the last three days? Because it was like a tomb, get it? Bible joke? Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came back and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Boop, right over their head, right? They didn't, under, they, they didn't see from scripture that there would be a suffering Messiah. They didn't see from scripture that the one from the highest heights would take the lowest route to get the highest name. They had, it just, it, it was lost on them. Did not the Messiah have, okay. And beginning... This is key. Luke 24, 27, guys, remember this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. There he is again, hidden in all of these scriptures. Next verse. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. What a boss move, right? He's like, hoo-dee-hoo, peace. Like, <laughs> how awesome. Okay, next verse. And then they asked each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They're kind of like, I knew it. My heart was burning as he spoke. Next verse. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem where they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. 
Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized them when he broke the bread. Isn't this so cool? So cool. So, and they were so like tweaked out with adrenaline and energy that they like went the seven miles back. 14 miles in one day, they went that seven miles after the sunset because they were so amped that the Lord had risen and talked to them and their hearts were burning within them. They made that journey where there's like, at night, where there's like lions and stuff, you know? Like, (laughs) So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said about him in all the scriptures concerning himself. And it says that he opened were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us, which means that the scriptures were closed. Many of the scriptures were closed to them until he opened them. You know, there's, there's a lot, there's just so many incredible like, lessons from just this section of scripture, but a couple of things that really stood out to me this time is that Jesus showed up to the the women, he showed up to Mary, and he was disguised. And then when he said Mary's name, Mary's heart leapt within her. She shouts out, Rabbi, and she sees it's not the gardener, it's Jesus. Jesus shows up on the road and he's disguised again. It seems like someone who comes back from the dead would want to be like, show it off, you know? But he, he comes disguised again and walks along the road with these two disciples. And I think that what the Lord is, is wanting us to see in this is that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and it's our glory to search it out. And he loves to walk with us along the road while we discover him. And he wanted us to know from that day forward that our burning hearts would be the thing that verifies that it's actually him, that we're finding him. See, because we used to think from the book of Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. But that was the problem for which Jesus was the answer because scripture also says, I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so now when our hearts burn within us, it is the signal fire pointing us to the face of Christ. All right, let's get practical. Can you put up that a slide that says helpful tips. Do you have that? Okay, so these are my helpful tips. This is like, I've been reading the, the Bible since I was a kid. I'm about to be 40, so that's like 30 plus years. This is ju- these are just my things. I haven't consulted another uh, professor or you know theologian on this. These are just things that have really, really helped me um, when it comes to understanding scripture, to ingesting the Bible. Uh, number one, read big, meditate small. In other words, like read vast swaths of scripture, like really just like let it wash over you, but ruminate on those moments when a scripture stands out. So like you might be reading all the way through the Bible this year, but you know what's really lighting your fire is like this you know, Colossians 1, and you're, you're just reading, in whom, through whom, for whom all things were made. You know, and, and you're just, you're letting the, the preeminence and, and supremacy of Christ 
wash over you. That's what you meditate on. And so I read big and I meditate small. This next one, sing it, say it, write it, pray it. I said it a little bit wrong because I like when it rhymes, but really you should say it first. So when you, this is just like a memorization technique. If you have like a, a scripture that you really want to get planted down in your soul, this is like a, a cool process uh, to do it. And I learned this from um, International House of Prayer. Um, and so like, let's say you're like Philippians 4.4. 4. It's a great verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, always rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord, Philippians 4.4, 4. and then you're like, and then you sing it, and maybe uh, you pick the tune, the melody of staying alive, you know, by the Bee Gees, and you're like, Philippians 4.4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> no? Or maybe like John Denver, take me home. <laughs> Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord at all times. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord at all times. Philippians 4, 4. And you're like, it's just, you're paving those pathways and your neurotransmitters to create a, a wide path that this verse just finds its way implanted deep in your soul. <laughs> All right, next helpful tip. Oh yeah, and write it and pray it. Those are <laughs> write it out because it uses more of your faculties, which is scientifically proven to help you remember things. And then praying it is so key because you're inviting the Holy Spirit to turn it into an encounter. Like, rejoice in the Lord. Oh, like, you rejoice in the Lord. I'm, I'm in Jesus, who is the source of all joy. In fact, at, in your presence is the fullness of joy, which it says in Psalm 16, in presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So how could I not rejoice when I'm in the Lord at all times? And you're praying it. Okay, next tip. Um, understanding the big themes is really helpful because if you can see like uh, some of those themes that stretch from the first page to the last page, you know, from the problem to the solution, then you've got that 3,000 foot view that will help you put in place some of those myopic details so you don't get lost in like in in the small details when you're up here and you're looking at the big themes so what am i talking about some of the big themes in scripture uh there's a a disinheritance of all nations after uh you know the tower of babel and then it says in ephesians that jesus would be re-inheriting all nations that out of both jew and gentile all nations he's made one new humanity so the disinheritance and reinheritance of all nations, and when you begin to see that thread throughout all of Scripture, it'll come alive to you all over again in new ways. Another big theme from first page to last page is, um, is 
uh, the new creation, new humanity. Another big theme is, is the first Adam representing humanity and the last Adam representing humanity. Another big theme is, is the fall of humans where we were the usurper. We gave him authority. We gave fallen spiritual beings authority and became slaves to sin. So we empowered fallen spiritual beings. Jesus comes along And in Colossians, it says, he has disempowered them, making a public spectacle of them them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so it's like, and then he puts the power back on us and he says things like in the Great Commission, I've given you authority to trample serpents. Those are big themes that stretch from like first page to last page. And when you start to see those big themes, then a lot of these stories begin to fall into the grand story. Another big theme is is God's judgment against unrighteousness because he hates with a fiery passion anything that destroys his children. Another helpful tool, uh, this is actually a whole teaching. Uh, I did it in uh, March, I think it's March 3rd. There's a podcast out, it's called The Three-Legged Stool. It's, um, It's like a checks and balances system, especially for when you don't understand a scripture or a scripture, you know, um, you don't want to, you don't want to get off track by getting off into a wonky interpretation of scripture. Uh, the three legs on this stool are scripture, tradition, and experience. So if you can envision this stool, those are the three legs upon which all of our thoughts on God should rest. And let me unpack that a little bit. Let's say you're reading a scripture and you don't know how to make sense of it. Well, Tradition is the history of the church. You have powerful men and women of God all throughout history who've gone before us, who've wrestled over some of these same questions, and you can go and find out what, in, like, what these saints believed. You can, I mean, tickety-tack-tack-tack-tack-tack, click, and you're, you're reading the early church fathers. You're reading like the disciples of the disciples and the grand disciples of the disciples, and you're, you're going into the ecumenical councils. You're reading about the Council of Nicaea. You're reading about the year you know, 325 AD at the council and, and like what these, what these uh, ecumenical councils meant, why they decided what they decided. And you, you can go all throughout church history and find out by tradition what trusted men have done and they've handed down the faith that was once and for all entrusted to the saints. And then experience is like, it's the confirmation of the Holy Spirit and the confirmation of trusted saints around you. So you experience deep friendship with people that you trust. They have, they can see your blind spots. They can let you in or that you've let them in to share with you hard things. That's real friendship, right? Because If you don't have friends like that, if you get off into a wonky theology, no one's going to slap you back into the right place. You know what I mean? So you can go to (laughs) your experience with the Holy Spirit and your experience with people around you to help keep you from being derailed. Does all of this make sense? These are like checks and balances. Um, Here's here's an example of like why why they're really important. Like these are, these are ways, that, like it's a spiritual process when you address these three, scripture, tradition, and experience. When you address these three, it's called 
tearing down strongholds and every argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. These are mighty weapons. They're not carnal. And here's why it's important. A lot of people think or say, all I need is my Bible and a secluded place in the woods to go and be with Jesus. That is the most arrogant thing you can possibly say. Y'all are looking at me like I just offended y'all. Don't, don't be offended. Reading the Bible in a secluded place in the woods is amazing if it's just part of your life and you've included yourself in the body of Christ and you're studying sound doctrine well. Because if you say, when people say, say like, all I need is a Bible in a, in a secluded place in the woods, that is the origin story of every cult <laughs> that has ever been. You better preach. Thank you, sister. I will. <laughs> uh, remember, our, <laughs> our carnal minds are at enmity with God, which is why Jesus was crucified in the place of the skull, Golgotha, place of the skull. And so we can't just trust our own interpretation of things. That is literally how everyone in history has gotten off derailed. Okay? I think I've talked about that enough. Uh, tip number five, know the literary genre. So scripture is full of uh, different types of literature. There's, um, well, let's just put them up there. Can you put up the next slide? It's the sections of the, you're so quick, Katrina. Okay, so these are sections of the Old Testament. There are ways to break it down even further, but I wanted to fit it nicely on one slide. So uh, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's the Pentateuch, the five, Pent is five, uh, Torah. Uh, and then next is history books or narrative uh, you can you can read you know the the path and trajectory of the Israelites. It's really fun. Uh, another section of scripture is poetry uh, or also wisdom. It's some of those are called Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon. These are these are really fun and beautiful and flowy and the imagery is amazing but i want you to like just know that like these were written by emo songwriters saints powerful powerful wonderful saints tapped into the heart of god but they wrote very with hyperbole they wrote with poetry they wrote with great imagery and symbolism that you can't take literally you know like is Jesus actually a livestock animal known as a lamb? No, Jesus is not actually a lamb, but figuratively, symbolically, metaphorically, he is the lamb, but he's not a lamb. He's fully man. He didn't like, when he died and went to the side of the father, he didn't turn into a livestock animal. So anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> Okay, so the major prophets, these are the big dogs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Lamentations, of course, written by Jeremiah, 
the minor prophets, you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, whoo, Habakkuk. That, there's a verse in there that's special to me these days, Habakkuk 3.2. Uh, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day and in our time. Make them known. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, incredible stuff in all of those. Can you go to the sections of the New Testament? The reason I'm t- showing you these sections, and I know a lot of you have seen this stuff before. You've probably even gone to classes where you've understood this better than I'm teaching it right now. But I know that it's helpful sometimes when, it, when the Bible feels like such a big task for it to be broken down into chunks. It becomes um, more you, surmountable. You can tackle it. These are the section, sections of the New Testament Gospels, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The synoptic Gospels are the first three. They're the ones that carry the most similarity throughout. John, he was just like, he was the special one. He just was dear to the Lord's heart and focused on so many uh, different aspects of the story of Jesus' time on earth. Uh, and then the history book is right after those Gospels. It's the um, Acts. Oh, let me back up real quick. So in the Gospels, there are different genres. Because in the Gospels, there's history, there's parables, there's poetry, there's prophecy. That's all in there. And so it's important to pay attention to what type of verses you're reading and put them in context as, as much as we can. Okay, and then the next section, these are Paul's letters to the churches, uh, chock full of glory, Romans and, fir- Romans and first and second Corinthians, and then giants eat peas and carrots. You guys know that one? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Some people remember those four by saying girls eat popcorn. Is that helpful? Girls eat popcorn, and now you can remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And then First and Second Thessalonians, and then Paul has letters to uh, friends uh, or like guys that he's placed in charge of churches, like Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Philemon is not in charge of church; it's a completely different. It's an awesome story, but slave. Um, okay, so uh, and then there's general letters, Hebrews, uh, which it's actually a, a mystery who wrote it. And it's fun to pontificate upon who wrote it. Um, James, first and second Peter, first, second, third, John, Jude, and then Revelation. A lot of, a lot of teachers put Revelation in general letters, but a, a lot of other teachers just it's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, it's highly full of, uh, of imagery. Um, so it's important to ask questions like, is this literal, metaphorical, symbolic, poetic? But I have a question. This is for all of you. Can a Bible verse be historical, metaphorical, and deeply personal all at the same time? Absolutely. That's just one of the most amazing things about this book. It's so infused with Holy Spirit life that it can be true historically, and it can be true metaphorically, like on a, on a, in a bigger picture, but it also can mean something specific to you and no one else, or specific to a church, or it could be a prophetic word for the moment. Like, it's just incredible. When you're, when you're reading this book for both knowledge and encounter, look out. It's just powerful. 
Um, is there a danger in making everything literal? Yes. Is there a danger in making everything metaphorical or symbolic? Yes, there is, which, which is why it's important to be good students of the word. This, I mean, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy is Paul's like number one pastor. And he says, watch yourself and your doctrine closely. Like these are important things. Watch yourself and your doctrine closely because if you do, you'll save yourself and everyone who hears you. So it's important to um, <clears throat> watch our doctrine. Um, so the Bible is historical, but that doesn't mean that it isn't also allegorical and you are allowed to derive symbolic meaning from the text. Jesus did this. In fact, this is Jesus's I mean, from the New Testament, it, it seems to be Jesus's favorite way to read the Old Testament is to find himself in it. I'm going to prove it to you right now. Jesus referred to himself as the temple of God. He referred to himself as the true manna from heaven. He referred, so we know that that's historical, but now Jesus is saying it was really me. Like spiritually, symbolically, this is how you can derive spiritual strength from this passage. I'm your manna now. Jesus said, I am Jacob's supernatural ladder, which means it's true historically, but Jesus is giving us a whole new spiritual level to it. Jesus says, I am the sign of Jonah. I'm the burning bush in Exodus 3. I'm the great shepherd of Psalm 23. I'm the bronze serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness so that everyone who looked at it would be healed. Is that true historically? Yes, it is. Is it now true allegorically? And Jesus is the one that when we look to him, it draws out all poison from our veins. Amen, it is. So when we say things like we're a Bible-believing church, what we're actually saying is that we believe our interpretation of Scripture is trustworthy. And most of the time, that's really good and really, really important, unless we're also saying our interpretation of Scripture is better than everyone else's. That's not humility. When we think that we have all the right answers, we're in danger of becoming a Pharisee who, can't be, who is very surprised when Jesus shows up in a way that we didn't expect. <clears throat> there are over 350,000 churches in the U.S. that claim to be Bible-believing, yet we are broken into 217 denominations and so many non-denominational spinoffs, and some of that is glorious. It's, uh, it's creativity, it's individuality, it's a, it's a great way to, different way to worship the Lord, but a lot of it, most of it is just divisive where leaders dug their heels in on small points that they never needed to divide over. And what I wanna do with this message is bring it all back to the unifying force of Jesus being all things to us. With so many churches you know, claiming to be right and so many options for teaching, preaching, and worship, you know, what are we, what are we to do? Well, first of all, I want us to take a deep breath and I'm gonna hand you a big old pair of scissors, spiritual scissors in the spirit so you can cut yourself some slack. 
And then we can camp out around the burning fire of Philippians 1.6, which says that he who started a good work in you will be faithful to carry it to completion. When we look at life and scripture through the eyes of Jesus, we can't go wrong. Can we stand and pray? Y'all, I just want us to have a deep friendship with God and deep friendships with people and, and put Jesus center stage in our lives. So let's just, let's just pray. Lord, would you open our eyes and make us wise through the Holy Spirit to understand wondrous things from Scripture? Would you put a burning new zeal in us for your written word, that it would be the living word, it would be the sword of the Spirit? you put in our hand that very divine and powerful sword that splits between bone and marrow, that splits between soul and spirit? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Open our eyes like you did for those boys on the road to Emmaus. We're not our hearts burning within us. Give us Give us those burning hearts when we open these pages to find you. In Jesus' name, amen.